the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Tuesday edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. Follow the show at danproftshow.com, on social media at danproftshow and at danproft, on Instagram at proftdan. All variations of the name. And uh, we're going to get to uh, policing and the uh, rioting in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, with uh, Jim DeMint uh, after the break. But top of the show, I want to tackle Trump's foray into California and his confab with Governor Gavin Newsom and uh, some of uh, his attaches in state government about wildfires in California. Of course, this while Joe Biden was uh, back in Delaware, having a uh, teleprompter help him uh, deliver an address on on climate change. Just just thinking about that for a minute. I mean, the assassination attempt on two Copton officers and the continued uh, unrest from Rochester, New York to Lancaster, Pennsylvania and throughout the nation as it comes to uh, policing, combined with uh, all things covid related. And uh, apparently somebody has been reading Joe Biden, Cormac McCarthy novels as his bedtime stories because he went uh, full dystopia in Wilmington, Delaware. Donald Trump's climate denial may not have caused these fires and record floods and record hurricanes. But if he gets a second term, these hellish events will continue to become more common more devastating and more deadly. Meanwhile, Donald Trump warns that integration is threatening our suburbs. It's ridiculous. But you know what is actually threatening our suburbs? Wildfires are burning the suburbs in the West. Floods are wiping out suburban neighborhoods in the Midwest. Hurricanes are imperiling suburban life along our coast. If we have four more years of Trump's climate denial, how many suburbs will be burned and wildfires. How many suburban neighborhoods will have been flooded out? How many suburbs will have been blown away in superstorms? If you give a climate arsonist four more years in the White House, why would anyone be surprised if we have more America blaze? If you give a climate denier four more years in the White House, why would anyone be surprised when more of America is underwater? We need a president who respects science, who understands that the damage from climate change is already here. Unless we take urgent action, it will soon be more catastrophic. Uh-huh. Wow. That's uh, a whole lot of uh, apocalyptic rhetoric there, isn't it? Well, uh, it's, and by the way, it's, it's very consistent with his speech from the other week. It's a nice country you have there, uh, the, the, the community you live in. You don't like the violence, do you? Well, you vote for Trump and your city's going to get uh, burned down and looted. 
Oh, you uh, you like your suburban community. Well, you vote for Trump and it's going to be a conflagration because of climate change. Oh, you like uh, that coastal city in which you live. Yeah, well, it's going to be Atlantis if you vote to reelect Trump. I love the politics of extortion and threat, which is, you know, one and the same of Joe Biden. <laughs> I mean, your your suburbs are going to be on fire. Your cities are going to be underwater. Remarkable stuff because it's all here. All right. Well, let's continue to let them have their say. Uh, This was an exchange between President Trump and Gavin Newsom's uh, secretary of natural resources there in the state of California about the wildfires. If we ignore that science and sort of put our head in the sand and think it's all about vegetation management, we're not going to succeed together protecting Californians. Okay, it'll start getting cooler. (laughs) I wish you just watch. I wish science agreed (laughs) with you. Well, I don't think science knows, actually. Mm -hmm. But uh, actually, those who are in um, Forest Service scientists and um, in the land management business, they they do know. They're pretty clear on it. Michael Schellenberger, 30-year environmental activist, writes for Forbes magazine. Forests that survive megafires prove good management trumps climate change. California's leading forest scientists say that fire suppression and the accumulation of wood fuel, not climate change are what made California's fires more intense. Forest Service scientist Malcolm North telling Schellenberger, climate dries the wood and dries the fuels out and extends the fire season from four to six months to nearly year-round, but it's not the cause of the intensity of the fires. The cause of that is fire suppression and the existing debt of wood fuel. This is uh, consistent with uh, a report that was published in February of this year from, uh, that was published in Natural Sustainability, arguing that California needs to burn 20 million acres of forest in order to restore forest health. 20 million acres of forest, by comparison, to give you an order of magnitude. From 1999 to 2017, an average of 13,000 acres of California were subjected to controlled burns each year. So over that uh, round numbers, 20-year period, that's about 260,000 acres. In February, this study, 20 million acres is what needs to be uh, burned in a controlled fashion in order to restore forest health. And then there's the discussion of why this isn't being done, and it's the philosophy change of control burn to trying to suppress all fires. It's uh, uh, bureaucracy and federal and state regulations. It's federal and state agencies that are similarly tasked to um, uh, land management issues, not coordinating particularly well. I mean, and all those are relevant. Um, but it is worth noting, too, just in terms of you know, Trump going to California despite uh, the political bent and in stark contrast to Joe Biden, who's talking about climate change and ascribing his pet theory about uh, things like California wildfires uh, to the limited audience in Wilmington, Delaware. And uh, that was recognized by Governor Gavin Newsom, who, you know, to his credit, at least he says things that are true from time to time, uh, as just as he recognized President Trump for the federal support to California during the COVID-19, the height of the COVID-19 outbreak in terms of federal resources being scrambled for the state of California. The same thing here with the wildfires. I mean, it, you know, it's a low bar when you're talking about the likes of Andrew Cuomo and Phil Murphy when it comes to fair weather fans of the federal response. Gavin Newsom on Trump's response to his pleas for federal help with respect to the wildfires. I want to thank you and acknowledge the work that you've done to be immediate in terms of your response to our FMAG request 14 uh, we were just talking, Mark Giladucci is the head of the Office of Emergency Services. This may be a record that the states received in the FMAG support 
as well as the major disaster declaration, which you referenced on August 22nd, which was profoundly significant, not only to help us support our mutual aid system, but also individuals that are in desperate need of support. Uh, And on climate change, since this is a huge bet that Democrats are making to uh, offer such a uh, uh, comprehensive, uh, frankly, utopian zero emissions plan as Biden has put forward on climate change as the cause for all of the ills in the world not induced by President Trump and COVID, although uh, Joe Biden said you know, he's not necessarily the cause of the wildfires, but he's also not not necessarily the cause. He he may not have caused them. He may, you know, he's he's open minded on the topic, but a more sober analysis from a Nick Gillespie, along with uh, Ronald Bailey over at Reason, uh, Reason magazine around Bailey, environmental scientist who's been writing on the topic for decades as well, like Schellenberger. Left unchecked, it is literally an existential threat to the health of our planet and to our very survival. The world is going to end in 12 years if we don't address climate change. Bailey says these claims are based on a misreading of U.N. climate change reports. There's no cliff that we're running off of. All it means is, well, it's going to be warmer than 1.5 degrees, most likely. Temperature increases will cause real problems, but Bailey says we're equipped to deal with them thanks to technology and economic growth. Climate change is going to become a significant problem. But my best guess is that we'll have the wealth and the technology for future generations will to be able to adapt to it and to start ameliorating what what problems that do arise. Uh, There will be sea level rise uh, and people will have to retreat from the coast, but they're not going to have to retreat tomorrow. Bailey attributes global progress to better ideas about how to organize society. Let's sum it up with the word the Enlightenment happened, basically, the Enlightenment. Uh, Essentially what happened is is democracy is a way to decide who gets to wield power and to be able to throw them out. The second thing is is that we ended up basically with uh, uh, free markets, is that all of a sudden we had property rights and and there was respect for the rule of law. The, The third stool of this, and I think this is the most important one, is called liberal science, how we decide what the truth is. And it's essentially a radical notion of, of free speech, is everybody gets to criticize everybody else, and there are no consequences other than you being shunned for that criticism. And so it goes from the worst blog post on the planet to peer-reviewed science t- today, or the most rigorous thing. Everything gets checked by everybody else, and that really speeds up innovation. Uh, That's uh, all true, and it's all well and good, so long as there is still such a thing as peer-reviewed science and not completely politicized science. There is such a thing as uh, a representative republic or a small-d democratic form of government. Those things are very much in question right now as well, and they would be put in further jeopardy, much uh, a greater threat to Western civilization than climate change if Joe Biden were elected. Stay tuned. We're going to turn our attention to uh, matters of policing and urban unrest in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, uh, with uh, former United States Senator Jim DeMint right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And as anticipated, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, after the police-involved shooting of a knife-wielding man there, 
rioting ensued, in part, I think, because the same pandering and appeasement was featured by local officials in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, as you have seen in Kenosha and big cities throughout America. Lancaster Mayor Deneen Soros responding at a presser to the police-involved shooting once the body cam video was released. Yesterday was a heartbreaking day for our city. My heart breaks for Ricardo Munez's family and the devastation it brought our community. A life was lost and lives were forever changed, including the officer involved. Yeah. Well, especially with the, the sort of the 21 foot rule, as it's uh, known. And I don't know that if this is a protocol still in, in all police departments, but uh, the 21 foot rule is essentially a calculation that was made by an officer and, and, and that became part of police training for many generations that you have 21 feet. If a assailant is 21 feet from you, that's the amount of time you have to pull your weapon and discharge two rounds center mass before he can get to you with his knife or sharp object. Yeah, this was a response to a domestic call. The mom calling police because her son was trying to break into her home. He comes out of the house after police show up and charges, and you can see the officer retreating while he shoots because the guy is running at him with a knife over his head in the air like he's about to attack. So the point, though, is why is it that we can't have public officials, be they elected like mayors or appointed like police chiefs, say what we know to be true? Look, I'm sorry anybody loses their life. But however, if I was the mayor of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, look, we had this situation. Police, I would just say what we know to be true. The police respond to a domestic call. The call was that this young man was trying to break into his mom's home. Maybe he there are mental health issues with him. I don't know. But what I do know from the body cam video is when police arrived, this young man comes out of the door, charges at the police officer with a knife, and he protects his life by shooting the assailant. It's real simple in this world. You comply with police officers and everybody goes home. You got a beef with the police officer. You adjudicate it in a court of law. That's why we have courts of law. Period. The end. Why is there no mayor in this country that seems able to utter those words and just provide the facts of a particular incident rather than all the emotional sophistry that we're treated to, which is just pandering to the mob? And you know what it does when you pander to the mob? It incites the mob. And that's exactly what Lancaster has experienced over the last two nights, haven't they? So I, I got to play this. Kevin Wharton Price, Africa Town Coalition in L.A. He's a leftist activist. This is the video he posted on his Facebook page in response to the shooting of those two Compton cops. A unknown assailant walked up and bust a cap on both of them, shot him in the head. What are we supposed to do, y'all? We're supposed to celebrate today because the oppressor has been slain. So if this is a start of retribution, then I think this is a very good start. Kevin Wharton Price is somebody that has been treated as a community leader by the mayor of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti. He's consulted with Kevin Wharton Price, who's advocating for the assassination of police officers. And this is not isolated. You had signage in Seattle at police protests that uh, people who kill cops are my heroes. That's the culture right now. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Jim DeMinn, former U.S. Senator, former President of Heritage Foundation, Chairman of the Conservative Partnership Institute. Jim, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Dan, uh, thanks for having me. And uh, thank you for your uh, introduction here. I mean, what you said about what needs to happen in this country is exactly right. Well, you uh, penned a piece uh, that I saw over Daily Caller. Uh, a big blue lie is what has fueled a summer of riots. What is that big blue lie? 
Well, it's the lie that the Democrats care about these poor people in these very difficult communities, that they care about the children that are trapped in these failing schools, that they care about the, the economic interests of these people that they put in these terrible public housing, and they, they will not support alternatives. They just lie about caring. What they want is what they're getting, is they're getting chaos. They want to create this sense that America is just in complete disarray so that they can have a political change. But over 95% of police shootings, Dan, happen when someone attacks a police officer with a weapon. And of course, in the middle of all this, there are mistakes. If someone pulls a cell phone in the dark after running from police, and police think it might be a gun. But after being attacked so many times and being in so much danger, they have a right and a responsibility to respond. And like you said, if we have an encounter with police, if we do what they say, the chances of something bad happening are, are almost zero. But what we see is people attacking police, uh, folks who have taken a lot of drugs, hard to control, resist arrest, go for a weapon, and for Democrat leaders to take the side of these people against police is just encouraging more and more of this chaos around the country. It, it, it's completely irresponsible, but it is a big blue lie that Democrats and the left care about poor people, black people, and other people who, who are really just not getting a fair shake in our country. Yeah, it's, it seems to me, um, I know everybody's focused on November 3rd, understandably, but this is going to continue regardless of who wins the presidency. And so there's this opportunity in states, particularly cities that have been big cities that have been dominated by Democrats for 50 years, for 100 years, like Chicago. It seems to me this is an opportunity for a building exercise for the Republican Party, build off what Trump has done to make overtures to be present to, in the black community and Latino communities to really try to bring more minority support to him and to the Republican Party and reconstitute Republican Party organizations in urban centers around this country to not only compete for those mayoralties, but to, to do a better job competing in the blue states or the purple states in which those cities are located and really flip the script on those cities and what their future could be if you reinstitute the rule of law. You're right, Dan. This is a real opportunity for Republicans. Trump has done more for working class Americans, for black Americans. He promotes school choice that's primarily going to help the poor and minorities. He's pushed and passed opportunity zones, which are getting more investment in these areas that have just been stuck in poverty for, for years. But I think one exception to what you said, a lot of this violence is going to stop if Joe Biden wins the election. Just like when Obama and Biden were in, the left did not have to create these kind of chaotic situations in order to have political change. A lot of this now was set up and ready to go, and they were just looking for something to light the fuse to make it look like Trump has caused this, which is completely illogical and ridiculous that he has caused police shootings in Democrat-controlled areas that he had nothing to do with. But yet they're saying he is the one who is doing this. So it, a lot of this is for political purposes. It will go away. I don't know that the Chicago shootings will go away because no. they've been going on for years. Uh, but I can tell you, if, if Trump is reelected, he's going to continue to try to do something about it because uh, I've never seen anyone more committed to keeping his promises uh, and it, he really does care about these these poor 
with black children stuck in failing schools because I've heard him talk about it in private. And so folks may not like his style, Dan, but there is no one like him who is trying to do more to create real change than Donald Trump right now. He is Jim DeMint, former U.S. Senator, President of the Heritage Foundation, and now Chairman of the Conservative Partnership Institute. Senator DeMint, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dan. Show.com. Welcome back to the show, and uh, the rule of law is not a topic just limited to uh, street violence. Uh, it also uh, surrounds government overreaches with respect to infringements upon individual liberties, constitutionally guaranteed rights. This uh, case out of Pennsylvania on Monday, federal judge, Judge William Stickman, siding with plaintiffs who uh, litigated uh, the governor there, Governor Wolf's shutdown orders, uh, ruling them unconstitutional, did uh, Judge Stickman. And um, the opinion is noteworthy. The liberties protected by the Constitution are not fair weather freedoms in place when good when times are good, but they're able to be cast aside in times of trouble. There's no question that this country has faced and will face emergencies of every sort. But the solution to a national crisis can never be permitted to supersede the commitment to individual liberty that stands as the foundation of the American experiment. The Constitution cannot accept the concept of a new normal, quote unquote, where the basic liberties of the people can be subordinated to open-ended emergency mitigation measures. Rather, the Constitution sets certain lines that may not be crossed even in an emergency. Actions taken by defendants cross those lines. It's the duty of the court to declare those actions unconstitutional. Boy, reasserting the notion of uh, constitutional restraints on uh, governments and government at any level uh, is uh, novel in these times. And uh, we see that uh, rule of law under assault on streets. We see it under assault by governors acting uh, without their legislatures, much less in contravention uh, to the Constitution, as the case in Pennsylvania uh, was so decided. And we also see it uh, with respect to elections, like the one we're having on November 3rd, which brings us to our next guest, C. Boyden Gray, who's counsel to Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush, from 1981 to 1989, and President Bush's White House counsel, 89 to 93. He uh, was U.S. ambassador to the European Union and a special envoy for European and Eurasia affairs during the George W. Bush administration. And he's a veteran of the 2000 election controversy. C. Boyden Gray, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. And uh, uh, you append a piece for The Hill, uh, building off your experience in 2000 and uh, calling into question the push for universal mail-in voting uh, as a matter of the rule of law when it comes to the administration of our elections. Correct. That's, I did do that, yes. And uh, what is the, uh, the legal uh, concern that you have for this push? Well, the, to start with, uh, the problem can be explained or understood better by understanding the distinction between 
uh, absentee ballots and these mass mail-in ballots. And it's, it's, it's the frustration of some of us that the president himself, who votes absentee, doesn't really make clear the wide distinction between absentee voting, which is common in many states, all states, right, and mass and mass balloting, which is not common. Um, the mass balloting, uh, well, sorry, with absentee balloting, you have to request the ballot. It could be sent to you. Uh, that is the request form that you have to send in to get an absentee ballot. That can be sent to you by mass. Betting, that's fine, but but it requires that you make a request for uh, an absentee ballot with a signature, and then when you fill it out, you have to sign it again, so that when it's looked at by the authorities, they can check the signatures to make sure that the person who requested the ballot is also the person who who submitted it. So, but that's not true with mass mail. Um, Balloting. They're mailing you not a request for uh, an absentee ballot. They're mailing you the ballot itself. And we don't know who that mailing is going to go to. Uh, some research we did, Pew Research uh, Group, found that uh, 10% of the people move every four years. This year, it's doubled 20%. That's a lot of people. And it's, it's inevitable that uh, many of these, many thousands of these votes are going to go to to addresses that no longer represent where uh, the people live. And there's no requirement and probably very little of it, of, 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 of it being done voluntarily, no requirement that you alert your your voting uh, place uh, that you have moved from one state to another or one part of one state to another part. I want to pick it up right there after we break and fold in the Bush v. Gore Supreme Court ruling and why that may have presidential value in the upcoming 2020 election. More with Seaboyden Gray, former counsel to Vice President and President Bush, right after this. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with C. Boyden Gray. He was the former counsel to Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush and then President Bush's White House counsel, 89 to 93. Former U.S. ambassador to the European Union and special envoy for European and Eurasia affairs during the George W. Bush administration as well. Before the break, we were discussing the uh, distinction between the customary absentee ballot processes in states versus this push for universal mail-in voting where you're preemptively – you're having election officials preemptively mass mail the electorate, uh, the distinction there. And in your piece in The Hill, you uh, note uh, the Supreme Court's decision in Bush v. Gore from 2000 uh, may be particularly salient here because of – of exactly this indiscriminate preemptory mail, preemptory mailing being done by election authorities, 
that, that, that it raises a constitutional issue. What is what is that constitutional issue? Well, that constitutional issue is, is that some votes may be invalid. I and mean, a great many of it may be invalid, which uh, dilutes the vote of the people who voted in accordance with the state's procedures and with the capacity of this state officials to make sure that the person voting is the person who requested the ballot. When you when you have a situation where anybody can fill a form out and send it in and is not a valid voter, that voter by definition dilutes a real voter's vote, skews the equality of voting within a within a state and violates the protection clause almost by definition. And that's what Bush v. Gore stood for. It said to as it as 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 had the Florida Supreme Court uh, rule that you couldn't cherry pick. The Democrats couldn't pick the three most Democratic counties to count. They had to count the whole state. Every voter must be treated the same. And under a mass ballot sending regime, you can't begin to to show that every voter is treated the same. Whereas under an absentee, more restricted, more controlled, uh, you you can pretty well sure uh, that everybody is being treated the same. So that's 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 the issue. That's the main issue. And uh, hopefully the states will wake up to the fact that they have to guarantee that all votes are treated equal or the Supreme Court will will invalidate or just simply ignore the results. Well, and, and you uh, uh, reference uh, these real world examples that are <laughs> that are actually still in real time with the redo going on in Patterson, New Jersey. But the universal mail-in uh, voting that the, the Patterson, New Jersey municipal election, the New York state uh, primary election, these are examples uh, where some of the problems being predicted for the November 3rd election actually did occur. So this, 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 this is not just an abstraction. This is these problems are manifesting themselves in the real world. It seems to me they're unavoidable. And I mean, they're, if you don't take steps to clear it up, you're going to have that problem and you're going to have state electoral slates perhaps thrown out altogether. And you may not have a, an electoral a vote majority on December 14th, which is the deadline. So and then you get thrown into the joint session of Congress and you have a real mess. This can all be cleared up if, if it's made clear that the mass uh, mail-in is directed to provide voters with the opportunity to request formally uh, an absentee ballot and to make sure that the and the amendment requires some state law changes, that there is time to count these absentee ballots, which are going to balloon because of COVID, right. people not wanting to get out and vote, that there's time to count those ballots before election night is over. And that's a very important piece of all this. Right. And so the, the real issue is not the post office issue that the Democrats have made made so much of tried to make so much of an issue. of. It's an election authority issue. And uh, counting as well as verifying who you're counting seems to be the issues. And, and of course, then you have the the various deadlines for when ballots must be postmarked or received by in the various states. Right. Exactly. You you You've described it pretty well. So is there anything that could be done by states, particularly those states that maybe have longer uh, post-election timelines for returning your completed ballot that would uh, that, you know, that would expedite uh, understanding what the results in a particular locality, thus a particular state are. And so you may get closer to determination faster if it turns out to be a close race, as many anticipate. Well, in in a couple of states, governors are trying to to allow uh, counting of ballots that were postmarked after the election, which I think is is is, is not constitutional. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you also have um, in Pennsylvania, for example, 
um, legis- legislature, Republican legislature, trying to uh, loosen the rules for counting absentee ballots and advance the date. Right now, the law prohibits counting until the polls are closed, and they want to open it up so that you can start counting a week or so in advance um, to make sure you have a number that you can announce that night. And the Democratic governor is threatening to veto the bill, and the U.S. Constitution gives the legislature the authority to set the rules. And the governor is not supposed to have any role, so far as I can see or anybody else can see. It hasn't been litigated, but the governor is not supposed to be in the mix. It's the state legislature that has the the power. So that kind of issue can come up if the governor successfully vetoes or is sought to be successful in vetoing the Pennsylvania legislation. We could have um, no result out of Pennsylvania for days and days and days. And how how concerned are you about uh, some of the more dystopian scenarios that have been wargamed playing themselves out with respect to the election results? Some you've described, but I mean, even taking it further down the road where neither side concedes, uh, you know, looking back at historical examples like Hayes v. Tilden, where you're th- it's thrown into Congress and you're horse trading on who the president's going to be or you're trying to essentially politically extort one side for 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 concessions in order to go with uh, who appears to be the winner, th- those sorts of things. Well, it happened in Hayes v. Tilden, and I think it involved sort of a back backdoor, backroom deal that said to the South, you get Hayes, but now you don't get Hayes. You get you 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 don't get children. You get Hayes, but you can move forward with Jim Crow. And right. So it was a it was a very very important uh, uh, occasion. But it happened then. Something similar happened in eighteen hundred. I mean, it's it's not new. And of course, it happened Bush v. Gore. We didn't know who was president until mid December. So these things have happened, and no one really can predict how it's gonna how it's gonna play out when the courts will decide. It's Pennsylvania issue about the governor versus the legislature. Uh, the Supreme Court would have to resolve that probably early enough for the state to react. Um, and, but we've only got two months, so it's a, it's a, it's very tense, and it's very important what happens over the next thirty days. He is C. Boyden Gray, counsel, former counsel to Vice President and President George H. W. Bush, as well as a U.S. ambassador to the European Union, special envoy for European and Eurasian affairs during George W. Bush's administration. C. Boyd and Gray, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. All right, my pleasure. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Pushing back against professional athletes who are prima donnas. I enjoy this. I want to see more of it. Thank you to L.A. County Sheriff Villanueva. Thank you to Colonel Jeffrey Powell. Thank you to our friend Herschel Walker. Uh, Let's go in order. Sheriff Villanueva has a message for LeBron James. I want you to match that and double that reward because I know you care about law enforcement. You expressed a very, very uh, interesting statement about your perspective on race relations and on uh, officer-involved shootings and the, the impact that it has on the African-American community. I appreciate that. But likewise, we need to appreciate that respect for life goes across professions, across races, creeds. 
Right. So pony up the 175 grand that's currently out there for reward leading to uh, for information leading to the arrest of the uh, individual who tried to assassinate those two Compton cops. I like that. Colonel Jeffrey Powell retired, penned an open letter to Roger Goodell back in 2017, you know, at the uh, height of the the previous height, the previous high watermark of the Kaepernick uh, kneel downs and other air, other nonsense fomented by Eric Reed and uh, NFL prima donnas. And uh, he's updated it now for 2020. Take a listen. Commissioner Goodell, I've been a season pass holder at Yankee Stadium, Yale Bowl, and Giant Stadium. I missed the 90-91 season because I was with a battalion of Marines in Desert Storm. Fourteen of my wonderful Marines returned home with the American flag draped across their lifeless bodies. My last conversation with one of them, Sergeant Garrett Mongrella, was all about how the Giants are going to win the Super Bowl. He never got to see it. Legends and heroes do not wear shoulder pads. They wear body armor and carry rifles. They make minimum wage and spend months and years away from their families. They don't do it for one hour on a Sunday. They do it 24-7, often with lead, not footballs, coming in their direction. They watch their brothers carted off in pieces, not on a gurney to get their knee ice. They don't even have ice. Many don't have legs or arms. And some of these heroes wear blue, and they risk their lives daily in the streets of America. They wear fire helmets, and they go upstairs into the fire rather than down to safety. On 9-11, hundreds vanished. They are the heroes. I hope that your high-paid, protesting pretty boys, and you, look into that mirror when you shave tomorrow and see what you really are. Legends in your own minds. You need to hit the road and take those worms with you. It's time to change the channel. Colonel Jeffrey A. Powers, United States Marine Corps, retired. Yeah, Colonel Jeffrey A. Powers. Uh, yes, sir, Colonel. Right away, sir. I think I may have said Powell. Powers. Jeffrey Powers. Colonel Jeffrey Powers. I'll post his video at Dan Prof Show as well. We don't have time to get to Herschel Walker, but suffice it to say he took a stand with Harris Faulkner on Fox News against Black Lives Matter and for law enforcement, as he did at the RNC, and as he continues to do, providing uh, intellectual leadership from former professional athletes that are is uh, difficult to find among current professional athletes. This is Dan Brown. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Our next guest asked the question, will we reemerge from COVID at some point? Will society ever open up again? The COVID trap we're currently in is what he describes. Tony Fauci says uh, maybe pre-COVID normality or something approximated late 2021, early 2022. So you can look forward to that, I suppose. It's bigger than Tony Fauci, of course, because you have all these politicians that uh, have seen political benefit to the lockdowns as well. Remarkably, I think even still. And so the question is, what incentives do they have 
to relax the restrictions. And oh, by the way, even if they did, what's the populace's response going to be since they've been so fear addled by the rhetoric from these politicians? And, and on what basis? What's the rationale going to be for relaxation? You see Andrew Cuomo, look at the case levels, hospitalization levels, case fatality rate in New York, and he's only willing to go to 25% of occupancy of restaurants. You know why? Because nobody else is doing more in a blue state. You know, 25, 50%. We're going to walk it back slowly, even though we jumped in. We're not going to jump out. We're going to walk it back because I need to provide the perception that I'm being responsible and methodical on the way back to liberty, even though I didn't have to be methodical and responsible on the way away from liberty. It's what we've said from the beginning, what Johan Gusecki, the former state epidemiologist for Sweden, said with these lockdowns and the quarantining effectively of healthy people. How do you get out by metrics? That's what the phases were supposed to be. But what happened with those phases? It's not hospitalizations and case fatality rate. It's just cases where the infections could be asymptomatic. It could be a mild illness or it could be worse. Doesn't matter. We're going to treat them all the same. It's just a numbers game. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Johan Norberg, who's a documentary filmmaker, senior fellow at the Cato Institute, author of In Defense of Global Capitalism and Open, the Story of Human Progress who has written about the so-called COVID trap, which uh, perhaps will be more enduring than the Thucydides trap. Johan Noberg, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. So will society ever open up again? I don't know. How optimistic are you? I'm not terribly. No, that's the question, because what is the metrics? It keeps changing all the time. Originally, they said that they had to shut everything down just to give the healthcare system time to cope with it. But once that was done, it was more vaguely flattening the curve, But when that's done, it seems like the whole point is that we should just avoid cases and deaths entirely. But what the Swedish strategy was always about was a recognition of the fact that we cannot avoid it completely. We can postpone it. We can delay cases and deaths by lockdowns. But then when you get out of it, you'll see the same thing happening again. And no one can stay down in lockdown forever or until we have a vaccine, because that would destroy the economy, the social fabric of society, the education system, mental health, and so on and so on. And that's exactly what we've seen in Western Europe, Sweden versus Spain, France, and other Western European countries where they have had outbreaks. Now, Israel is doing a second lockdown. We saw, saw the same thing in July with certain states here. But then you're six weeks removed from it, as we are now with some of those states that saw spikes in July. And you start to say, well, maybe Sweden did have it right all the time with their light touch when it came to these these mandates that are sort of ascientific and particularly draconian. That's right. And also the Swedish model gave some room for common sense and for people to use their own individual judgment on social distancing, on protecting vulnerable people and so on. We can continue to say that and move that back and forth when we need more social distancing. But if you choose this repressive lockdown, it's either you go back in total or you just leave it be. But with the metrics they have that we should keep COVID-19 suppressed, then they will have to go back into lockdowns again and delayed perhaps a little bit further, but with even more damage to society and to our kids and and families. So I think it's a very dangerous strategy. Interesting, though, uh, this uh, journal piece about where we stand with the um, job situation in America. 6.6 million job openings in July, about as many as we had in December of last year. 
Also in uh, the retail sector, despite a lot of brick and mortar store bankruptcies, you have retailers, online retailers, warehouses, home improvement stores like Home Depot that have been on a hiring binge. So retail workers' wages have actually risen at an annualized rate of 10% since February, but we still have about 2.5 unemployed workers for each job opening. That's the same ratio we had in January of 14, five years after the Great Recession of 08, 09. So it, it is a curious thing, despite these major cities in America being more or less offline, you really do have a bounce back, when it, at least as it pertains to employment. Yeah, and I think you should have because there's lots of pent-up demand. People have been saving lots of money during this period. Now they're getting back in, if not full force, at least some of it. And we can see sectors of the economy, as you say, growing rapidly. And then obviously you need people. We've had this problem in many areas in, in Europe. We've paid people lots of money to reduce their work time. And that has created less movement and flexibility in the economy because people stay attached to old jobs that might not be coming back. In the US, that has not been the case. It seems like there's more of an opening for um, reducing employment in some areas and moving to other places. And so, you know, what, what's your prognosis when it comes to, you know, thinking about this with some historical context in terms of coming out of this, where we are now in the West in general, as a where we were in the West coming out of a much more serious pandemic, at least in terms of death toll, the Spanish flu of 100 years ago that this is often compared to? Well, we didn't enter this through any kind of serious discussion or a cost-benefit analysis. We did it panicking and very emotive issues here. And I think we're going to get out of it in the same way. It's not going to be according to a particular metric. It's going to be more like keeping up with the others. When influential players, others are going to start opening up. And that's exactly how we got into this mess originally. When researchers looked at which places shut down entirely and when did they do that? It's not according to where they were in the spread of the disease or number of cases or the state of their healthcare system or anything like that. It was just that they followed the herd. When someone started to shut down entirely, everybody else did. And it seems like their assessment was that it's better to be wrong if everybody else is wrong. Then use your own individual judgment and probably be right. But if you fail, you will be alone in it. Sweden is one of few places that was brave enough to do that. And I think it's paid off. I wanted to uh, get your um, take on this book that you wrote, uh, Open the Story of Human Progress. The Story of Human Progress uh, runs concurrent with the story of uh, free minds and free markets. And that's a more fragile thing than I think most people realize. I wonder how concerned you are that even with the the move to reopen. And even if we get further down the road in the next six months, say there's a vaccine and we are on a more robust timeline than some of those public health experts are predicting. Are we in a place now where we've backdoored ourselves into the cloward pivot strategy the left has always wanted to use, which is to bankrupt the system to usher in an era of government-centric society, uh, be it uh, socialist or even more authoritarian? $9 trillion in in terms of response. And of course, the economies of other Western nations are even in worse shape. How do we climb out of that aspect of what we've done to ourselves? Yeah, this is actually a bit of a coincidence. I wrote my book before the pandemic, but one of my um, conclusions is that many golden eras in open societies historically were ruined in times of crisis. And the crisis could be an invasion, a great depression, or national disaster, or a pandemic. 
because then often it's like H.L. Mencken once pointed out, uh, if the populace is alarmed, they will be, clam be clamoring for safety and they look to the strong man, the big government to protect them. And this often ruins that openness and the progress that comes with it. So that's one reason why I reacted early on during this pandemic, asking people to think twice before they implement these policies, because they often remain for a very long time. It's more difficult to get out of it than jump into it. Where will it leave us this time around? Around. I'm not sure. I can see a strong public opinion opposed to many of the closures that have taken place and the growth in government, but it'll take a lot. There will be a legacy there. But the one thing that worries me big time is that historically, this has been a fairly small pandemic. I mean, it's taken a terrible human toll, obviously, but in terms of cases of mortality, it's not even as dangerous as the uh, Hong Kong flu of 1968. And yet, we didn't hesitate to close everything down and throw many human economic liberties out the window. So my fear for the future is with this kind of culture, what happens the next time around if we see a more dangerous pandemic or another crisis, which we're about to see sooner or later? Will people turn to big government and, and strong men and authoritarians even more then? That worries me. Yeah, the precedent that we set, I completely agree. He is Johan Norberg, documentary filmmaker, senior fellow at the Cato Institute, author of In Defense of Global Capitalism and Open, the Story of Human Progress. Johan Norberg, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show and uh, turning our attention back to electoral politics. President Trump spoke to uh, Fox and Friends this morning about a range of topics, including the Woodward bombshell, alleged bombshell, that... Uh, came after the Atlantic bombshell that turned out to be a dud after 21 refutations of President Trump allegedly denigrating American war dead on foreign soil. So that didn't work. So now they're on to the Bob Woodward book. Unfortunately, in this case, I think the president made a judgment call by agreeing to 18 hours worth of interviews with Bob Woodward, at which point Bob Woodward, per his 60 Minutes interview, concluded, and it's memorialized in his book now, nicely timed for you know, seven weeks out from the election, that President Trump is not the right man for the job. Bob Woodward talking to Scott Pelley. I say the president is the wrong man for the job. But you're known as the reporter who doesn't put his thumb on the scale. And yet at the end of this book, you do just that. It's a conclusion based on evidence, overwhelming evidence that he could not rise to the occasion with the virus and tell the truth. And one of the things that President Trump told me in the presidency, there's always dynamite behind the door. The real dynamite is President Trump. He is the dynamite. Yeah, and I don't think he means it in the J.J. Walker sense, like he is dynamite. I don't think so. Uh, he is uh, the unstable element uh, in the next hour, I'm going to tackle a uh, William Vogeli piece, Claremont Review of Books, about uh, government's response to crises, uh, pandemics and the like, and the sort of the false premises from which we start, including people like Bob Woodward, 
about uh, the you know omnipotent and infallible government when we are trying to grade a particular response, and and especially in real time. But for now, just the decision to uh, sit down with Woodward and to uh, subject yourselves to subject to himself, I should say, to a hatchet job that he knew was coming. His uh, answer to Fox and Friends about uh, why do the interviews that led to this book and now this controversy about uh, how you approach communicating to the American people about COVID-19. Why on earth would the president of the United States sit down and talk to Bob Woodward something like 18 times on tape? Well, because I assumed he was a little bit fair. I didn't do it previously. He only writes bad books. And I actually got to read it last <laughs> night. I read it very quickly, and it was very boring. But there was not Is much it in accurate, that book. Mr. That's, President? That's a boring book. Uh, it's okay. I mean, it's fine. I don't want to create panic. You know, people say, oh, you should have gone out there and say, uh, you know, jumped up and down. You're going to die. You're going to die. No, I don't want to do that. I don't want to build it up. So there's a, a few things there. One is I thought he would be a little bit fair, but he only reads he only writes bad books. So w- which is it? You thought he would be fair and it was worth your time or he only writes bad books. And if he only writes bad books and that was your understanding, which is not an inaccurate one, then why would you waste the time, especially that much time? Why would you go on the record? Let him write another one of the uh, hatchet job books that other authors have written. Yes, it'll have more standing because he's, you know, of Bob Woodward of Woodward and Bernstein fame and so on and so forth. And he has uh, elevated status and the D.C. press corps, but he can have that pedestal. And if all he has is largely anonymous sources, wherever his well-placed sources in the federal government are, then it becomes just another brush off. But when you go on the record as president of the United States extensively, and you also say, as you heard President Trump say in that interview, that it's okay as to the question of accuracy. Well, now you're left to go back and forth about uh, your choice of words and describing your thinking about the type of response you wanted to provide uh, in the early days and subsequently to the outbreak and what the federal government was going to do. I just I just don't understand why Lindsey Graham would set it up. I don't understand why President Trump would agree. And I don't think this has worked out well for him. Uh, We had this conversation with Matt Mayer on yesterday's show and he made the point, hey, look, I as some as a father, a kid, and I'm not one. So it's a it's a useful perspective. You know, I didn't tell my kid everything I knew. I didn't just sort of lay it straight to him because I didn't want him to be more afraid than he was already going to be afraid with everything he hears and everything he sees on social media and so forth. I understand that. And that's a fair perspective. But there is something President Trump could do. It's it. It is not like, a, you know, Joe Biden apocalyptic pablum or mindless happy talk. There's a lot of space in between those two extremes. And the space in those two, between those two extremes is to say, here's what we know. There's no reason to go empty all the shelves. There's no reason to hoard toilet paper. There's no reason to uh, rush out to the gas station. Uh, we're going to be fine. Here's what we know. Here's sort of the varying levels of, of threat assessments that have been made. You know, generally speaking, you could communicate this. Here's the response that we're taking. And what we're going to do is can you know measure our response and its effectiveness in real time and pivot accordingly based on how evidence on the ground changes. So you can reassure people by speaking to them as calmly as an adult as well. That's another way to do it. Now, to be fair to Trump, even though I think being constructively critical of the choices made here, uh, he he has visited this topic before. I mean, he was asked about these during those circus like press briefings 
uh, back in March and April about his optimism with respect to uh, how long COVID would be around and how much devastation and uh, loss of life it would inflict. This is President Trump back in March on the topic. Is there any fairness to the criticism that you may have lulled Americans into a false sense of security no. when you were saying things like it's going to go away well, it is. and that sort of thing? But Jim, it's going away. But when you were saying it's going to go away, hopefully at the end of the month. And if not, it hopefully will be soon after that. But hasn't no, it your is thinking going, on this evolved? Jim, it is going away. Hasn't your thinking on this evolved? You're taking it more seriously now. I think from the beginning, uh, my attitude was that we have to give this country. I know how bad it was. All you have to do is look at what was going on in China. It was devastation. And well, yeah, look at the numbers from China, those initial numbers coming out from China. But I read an article today, which was very interesting. They say we wish President Trump would give more bad news. Give bad news. I'm not about bad news. I want to give people hope. I want to give people a feeling that we all have a chance. I mean, when when you saw when you saw the numbers and when John and all of you saw those numbers and you're saying 120,000 people you mean that's good 100,000 dead people within a short period of time i want to give people a feeling of hope i could be very negative i could say wait a minute those numbers are terrible this is going to be horrible this is a horrible thing and so uh, again it wasn't a secret and i think that provides some context to what he communicated to bob woodward and this effort to uh, pretend like those exchanges and hardly with a friendly Jim Acosta from CNN didn't occur back six months ago in real time at the height of the outbreak. Um, but I, I just still don't think that uh, it was worth the president's time. It's uh, difficult enough uh, with the uh, demagoguing of the federal government response to the pandemic and, and his response in particular. I just think this sort of feeds uh, the left's demagoguery in a way that is unhelpful 50 days before an election, knowing what you had to know about the kind of book Bob Woodward would do and the timing of that book. Coming up, uh, we'll uh, turn our attention to uh, where we find ourselves fiscally with a look ahead to uh, a Trump second term and beyond. That will do with uh, James Capretta, a contributor to uh, Real Clear Policy and the Milton Friedman Chair at the American Enterprise Institute right after this. Listen to podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Net zero is Joe Biden's plan for the energy sector, right? Net zero carbon goal by 2050. You know, all those coal miners are going to have to learn to code, as Joe Biden said. And uh, he uh, went on a bit of a spending spree, although price tags weren't attached to all of his proposals during his climate change speech from Wilmington, Delaware. The Obama-Biden administration rescued the auto industry and helped them retool. We made solar energy cost competitive with traditional energy and weatherize more than a million homes. This is just the beginning if we get reelected. And we'll do it again, bigger and faster and better than before. We'll also build 1.5 million new energy efficient homes and public housing units that will benefit our communities in three times over by eliminating affordable housing crisis 
by increasing energy efficiency and by reducing the racial wealth gap linked to home ownership. Yeah, well, that uh, sounds nice. Uh, I don't know. The energy efficient homes, uh, some estimates are that uh, they're about 40 percent uh, uh, more cost per square foot than your customary home. In addition to that, uh, the uh, Obama-Biden administration energy secretary, Ernest Moniz, admitted this week at a utility conference that California's solar and battery ambitions of going from 30 percent of the state's electricity to 60 percent by 2030 are a pie in the sky and that natural gas will be necessary for some time to ensure reliable power in California, something they don't have currently as uh, PG&E cut off power this week to 172,000 customers in Northern California because of the smoke associated with the fires that is reducing the delivery of energy from solar to Californians. Uh, So thinking about uh, the Green New Deal, which is what Biden is talking about in general terms here, or, or certainly that's the umbrella under which those proposals reside, uh, what the price tag on that may be, boy, it certainly um, uh, is something to contemplate when trying to assess the country's fiscal future, which is what uh, James Capretta does in a recent, police, a recent piece at Real Clear Policy, realclearpolicy.com. James Capretta is the Milton Friedman Chair at the American Enterprise Institute, and he joins us now. James, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So, I mean, we start with uh, the CBO uh, 10-year forecast that was uh, released last week. But uh, as you point out in your piece, one of the things that uh, that 10-year forecast, which is pretty daunting, doesn't even contemplate is all of the new spending that politicians want to do, particularly when you're talking about big ticket items like, I don't know, 30 or $40 trillion Green New Deal program. Right. I mean... Obviously, we've gotten into a situation where both parties are a little bit uh, bidding against each other to to uh, you know outdo each other in terms of the big programs they're going to promise and and the generosity of them and the expense of them and uh, you know I'd say uh, I'd say that um, the situation is very very bad over the next ten years under current law. Uh, the assumptions there are probably even worse. You know that. Um, some of the spending that's assumed for defense and non-defense appropriated accounts probably is below what actually will occur given the world situation and a lot of concern about underinvestment in certain public health preparedness activities. So, you know, we're in a bad we're in a bad place fiscally. Now, having said all that, Dan, I do agree with the general view that we got to get out of the rut we're in right now economically. You know, we do need to get the economy to some sense of normalcy, and then we need to have a big national conversation about where do we go from here? How do we do the things we want to do over the next three decades, strengthen our country, strengthen our economy, um, but do it in a way that can be sustainable fiscally because we're just not there now. Well, and as you point out in your piece, we're projected to exceed, federal debt is projected to exceed our annual GDP next fiscal year. Yeah. And that's a big deal, right? I mean, not necessarily something that's going to cause a big crash or anything, but just as a, a marker and a measuring point, remember when we came out of World War II, we were above 100% of GDP in, in terms of um, accumulated debt at that point, but we had fought a global war and borrowed a huge amount of money to do so and win it, and then it quickly came down and it was very much in the 30 to 40% range of GDP for a long time. In fact, it was at 40% of GDP at the end of 2008. That's only 12 years ago. 
now here we are above 100% of GDP. We're not really fighting a global war anymore. We're, we're fighting a pandemic that's costly, but that's not the same thing. And we shouldn't be in this position. There have been multiple opportunities for our political leaders from both parties, I would say, to move in a better direction. They both both parties have declined to do so. When we come back, I want to tackle something that's uh, not included in those rather dreary numbers, and those are unfunded liabilities associated with entitlement programs. That has to be contemplated, too. know all about that as an Illinois resident. Uh, James Capretta, contributor to Real Clear Policy, Milton Friedman Chair at the American Enterprise Institute. We'll be back with more right after this. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with James Capretta. He's a contributor at Real Clear Policy, and he holds the Milton Friedman chair, the coveted Milton Friedman chair, I would say, at the American Enterprise Institute. I only have Milton Friedman socks. I don't have the chair. James Capretta, thanks uh, for joining us. Before the break, we were talking about um, the uh, CBO projections for the next 10 years. You know, that you're one of these boring green eye shades guys that we pretend we care about uh, what you have to say about uh, the looming <laughs> fiscal crisis. And then we just want to go spend, spend, spend and have fun and not listen to what James Capretta has to say about uh, the reckoning that is ultimately going to come. But um, e- even when we were just discussing the idea that our debt, federal debt, will exceed annualized GDP next year, that doesn't include the unfunded liabilities and entitlement programs. And you uh, started uh, to tackle that in your piece at RealClearPolicy.com that, uh, you know, we, we have to rethink the obligations these entitlement programs are throwing off on a daily basis and then an annualized basis uh, I mean, if, if I guess if we want to do anything even resembling maintaining the compact between our ancestors and our progeny, other than um, uh, re, re uh, configuring that contract to be you inherit debt only and no benefits. Um, so, so what are the conversations that have to happen about entitlement programs on a go forward basis once we do start to grow our way out of the pandemic shutdowns? It is a very difficult conversation, but it's totally necessary. You're spot on in how you describe what we need to do. I mean, we don't really need to renegotiate every aspect of our social contract. We don't, Social Security is going to remain the way it looks now. It's going to stay that way, even if we reform it. Same with Medicare, same with Medicaid. Those are the big three programs. But we do need to make some adjustments to them so that their costs can be sustained and affordable so that the next generation can have that safety net for themselves as well. That social program needs to be there for them. And right now we're just on track because of the population aging and healthcare cost inflation between the three of those programs, we're you know really gonna end up spending all of our resources on just those three things and nothing else. And that's not really sustainable. So we need to make some modest adjustments to them, modest in the sense that they build over time but just sort of like the Illinois situation, you mentioned that at the top, you know, these are things with long fuses. You've got to make adjustments now to affect how they spend out in 10 and 15 and 20 and 30 years. So you've got to kind of get started. You need to sort of say, how do we renegotiate this so that it's a little more affordable? Um, but let's 
put them in place now and phase it in very slowly. That's the deal. That's what you got to do. And it doesn't pay off big immediately, but it will pay off big over the long term. And we got to do this for, for folks who are behind us, the next, the next generation of workers. Why don't uh, we just have uh, Jay Powell fire up the old printing press and print another $10 trillion or so? That's a great question. There's a lot of people on the left who, who are now saying that's the way out. And, you know, they argue that, well, it's never been tried or this or that. You go back and look at there are countries that have tried that. Uh, big countries. Italy is a big country. Uh, they have had both loose monetary and fiscal policy. They had a policy in the 1970s where they did monetize the debt. And it was very explicit. It didn't work. I wrote a piece about that a couple months ago at Real Clear Policy. And it led to massive dislocation in their economy, problems that they're still de- dealing with today. So the idea that somehow we can repeal the laws of macroeconomics and just print as much money as we want, spend as much money as we want, it's total folly and it, it'll, it'll crash down upon us. What, uh, what are your concerns or, or maybe even suggestions in terms of how we unwind all the money that was printed even before the pandemic during a decade of quantitative easing and then a double down on uh, since the pandemic? Well, I think what we got to do is get a growth agenda going. We got to realize that Growth is going to come from a dynamic economy, so we have to embrace some fundamental things that people find uncomfortable, which is really what are necessary, though, to get us moving again. One of them being, frankly, free trade, that the idea you can close yourself off from the world and that productivity will improve is completely wrong. Competition is what drives productivity. It's what drives innovation. It's what drives better lives down the road. It's what leads to better companies producing better products and being able to compete in the world. So you need a pro-competition, pro-market policy, free trade being a very key component of it. And you need to get our fiscal house in order, you know, moderated change over those programs over the long term so that investment capital, people, by the way, immigration and everybody, all that comes with that, we want to be the destination point for people that want to build better lives for themselves, bigger, better companies, put their money to work so that it grows and, in, and compounds over time. We want to be that big, dynamic economy. And to do that, you got to have your fiscal house in order. you got to be open to competition and free trade. And you got to be kind of uh, allow for the failure of companies and the creation of new ones. Uh, that's where we need to go. Ray uh, Dalio, the... Uh... Uh, billionaire hedge fund manager, Bridgewater Associates, uh, said in a recent interview, institutional investor, um, that uh, there's since there's no interest in doing the things that you say we need to do, and I, I agree with you with, with respect to restraint and uh, fiscal responsibility, uh, the government's going to have to sell bonds. We're going to have to sell a lot of bonds to the world, Delia said. Americans will not have the capacity to buy all the bonds that will be sold Dalio saying the most important thing to him is global diversification through country, asset class, and currency. Countries with strong balance sheets and income statements are attractive, especially if they're not in the crosshairs of the U.S.-China conflict. So uh, can we um, uh, bond our way out of some of this uh, to underwrite the uh, profligate spending that uh, Dalio suggests will continue? And he may be right. Well, I think that's where we are at the moment, right? And that's he's sort of looking at the crystal ball and saying, you know, that's where we're headed. Yeah, he's right that that's the trend line. That's what CBO is projecting, you know. 
they're going to say we're we're going to sell you know 12 trillion dollars or something of bonds over the next few years and a lot more after that and we've already sold you know a huge amount over the last two years so um i, I think the trend line is that that's where we're going and be 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 aware as he indicates there that a lot of these bonds are being bought up by uh, basically foreign governments. You know, Japan owns a lot of U.S. debt, so does the U.K., and so does China. And so uh, if we sell a lot more, we're going to be relying on a lot of foreign governments to buy our debt. He is James Caprata, contributor at RealClearPolicy.com, the Milton Friedman Chair at the American Enterprise Institute. James, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you, Dan. Take care. Welcome back to the show. I'm building off our conversation with uh, Jim Caprata from American Enterprise Institute about economic growth. We may have uh, somebody about to contribute contribute to America's economy for the first time in his life. Hot dog, Anthony Weiner's got a new bag. Yeah. The um, registered sex offender slash Democrat congressman, I repeat myself, uh, was recently named the CEO of Ice Stone which has a factory in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, according to uh, the New York Post. I mean, talk about a metaphor. The company Ice Stone makes countertops out of broken glass. He's literally putting pieces of broken glass back together, uh, much as he is trying to pick up the pieces of his broken heart and life um, per his uh, failed marriage to uh, Uma. Remember her? Yeah. Uh, Ice Stone. Yeah. Countertops out of broken glass. According to the company's website, uh, he is a perfect fit. I don't know about for the CEO gig, but maybe it doesn't pay as much as most CEOs. We hire the homeless refugees and train the formerly incarcerated. There's Wiener. And ensure that everyone gets paid a living wage and has access to subsidized health insurance and a voice in the company. Well, isn't that just so egalitarian? So I assume he's making at least $15 an hour. That's a livable wage. I mean, uh, Wiener, for those of you who don't remember the particulars of his storied career, he's never had a job in the private sector. He got a B.A. in political science. And after school, he went right to work as a staffer for uh, Pagliacci, Senator Pagliacci there, the Senate minority leader. And then he was just a political hack for the next 30 years. And now he's the CEO. Uh, Apparently... Ice Stone owner Dal LaMagna either doesn't care about his money or has too much to worry about. Uh, This guy reportedly made a fortune as the founder of a brand of beauty tools. Met Wiener years ago when he was unsuccessfully running for Congress and visited him uh, several times during his 21-month prison sentence, perhaps to uh, update him on his Twitter account. I don't know. I knew him from the political world. He talked me out of running for mayor, which was good, and we developed a relationship, said Lamagna. Uh, I want to help him in any way I can. He served his time, and coming out is tough. And so I said, can you work for Ice Stone? And he suggests that uh, he's going to be a great CEO because of his, con- his experience in Congress where he had a big staff. hi uh, And he uh, managed 25 to uh, 30 people. So that's... Uh, 
a great proving ground for being bottom line sensitive and uh, profit oriented. Okay. (laughs) All right. Hey, it's, uh, it's your dough, Dal. Uh, you, you, uh, roll your dice with Anthony Weiner, but, um, uh, you know, it's just nice to see him, uh, a, a congressman, any congressman actually become a productive member of society. So hopefully, uh, Weiner will. Mm, yeah. All right. I, I, I just, I can't, I just can't make any more, uh, veiled Weiner jokes. I'm just, I'm just over it. It seems like so two years ago, at least, doesn't it? This is Dan Proffitt. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcast there as you do on spotify and itunes twitter at dan Proft and at dan Proft show upwards of a half a million people have signed an online petition calling on netflix to remove this movie cuties from their uh, streaming service that they posted they um also are the subject of congressional interest uh, from the likes of tulsi gabbard among others suggesting that uh, it's inappropriate to some calling for the department of justice to investigate the filmmakers i haven't seen it and i'm not keen to i did talk to uh, brendan o'neill uh, last evening about it and he has seen it uh, brendan o'neill who's the editor-in-chief of spiked online his description of it was that it was morally ambiguous and that was the problem particularly the adults conduct in the movie uh, that that on the one hand the director suggests that he's trying to make a statement about the sexualization of children but on the other hand, uh, the takeaway from Brendan O'Neill's pretty sophisticated guy is that it just doesn't accomplish what he says he was trying to accomplish because of the moral ambiguity of the behavior of adults with respect to the sexualization of the kids in the film. But look, this is uh, a long running effort by the left to mainstream pedophilia. And you, you don't have to believe me. You just have to go back and read op-eds in Salon.com from six years ago, from eight years ago. I'm a pedophile, but I'm not a monster. Do you remember that one? So um, this is just the latest iteration of it. And it's very confusing in these times because on the one hand, you have the Me Too movement. And you're talking about uh, women of age who are suggested to not have agency because of the imbalance in a power relationship, a Hollywood producer and an aspiring actress, for example. They're not to have agency, so they were preyed upon even though they're of age. On the other hand, you're suggesting that young girls or boys, but uh, the, the, the point is the same, do have agency and that just love is love, as the leftists want to say, is it? And all barriers must come down. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined again by Andy Berger. She is the co-founder of Beulah's Place in Redmond, Oregon. She's the author of A Fragile Thread of Hope, One Survivor's Quest to Rescue. And uh, she's the co-founder of Voices Against Trafficking. Andy Berger, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. 
Well, thanks for having me back. I really appreciate that. So give us uh, your perspective on Cuties and what you would like to see or not see happen to the film. Well, personally, I would like to see that film uh, taken off any streaming and destroyed. But uh, in short of that, um, everything you said is correct. This is fodder for pedophiles, and it will also help fuel the child sex trafficking trade. Uh, we know that at least one in four victims are tra- uh, trafficking our children. And and honestly, if the director really wanted to make a statement, where is the proof? Where is uh, the prior statement saying, hey, I believe we need to make a statement about the sexualization of, of young children. There's no history of activism or of participation in the fight you know, against exploitation. What I believe, my personal opinion, is it's a money grab. And, you know, Netflix wants influence and money. They certainly have high-end consultants who you would think would know better uh, than to put something like this out. I mean, these little girls, who are the parents that even allowed them to be in this movie? Uh, you, you said um, you think this will lead to more sex trafficking. Connect the dots for us. Why do you think that? Well, here's here's one, one aspect. First of all, if a child does watch that movie, which we, we know that the audience is not specifically children, it is for the adult audience. It, in my opinion, it's soft kitty porn. Okay, so the, the, the part of it is um, those kids are going to look at that and say, oh, mommy, I'm going to dress like that. I want to be in a dance class like that. If they do watch it, if they're allowed to watch it, um, and if there aren't parental controls, it's very likely they will. And it's like, ooh, I want to do that because, you know, there's this little boy in class, you know, that I want to impress or whatever, or I want to dress like that. I want to dance like that. There is no possible reason on earth to show a 10 or 11 year old undulating on screen, you know, in a behavior that is not age appropriate. And the film also takes away the parental right to have an age appropriate conversation with their own children on sex and intimacy. She was uh, the director I referenced, screenwriter, director. She said this about, uh, Uh, how she interacted with the children. She, quote, created a climate of trust between the children and myself. She stated, while working on the film, film, I explained to them everything I was doing and the research I had done before I wrote the story. I was also lucky that these girls' parents were also activists, so we were all on the same side. At their age, they've seen this kind of dance. Any child with a telephone can find these images on social media these days. And uh, she said she also worked with a child psychologist during the filming you know, for the interests of the of protecting the kids, how do you react to those statements? Well, that very statement you just made, she she garnered their trust. Okay, so these little girls are thinking, hey, we're going to be in a movie, we're going to be popular, we're going to be famous, whatever. So they are trusting that she is doing the best for their interest when it really is self-interest. Nobody makes a movie like that because they care about children. They make a movie like that for sensationalism, to desensitize um, our values about children. Uh, they're used as chattel all the time, but also it's a money grab. They're going to make a lot of money. And as well, uh, you know, the consultant, you know, former President Obama and his wife who have children, you know, Meghan Markle. And I, I think uh, you make a, a salient point, too, when you uh, 
say that just think who's the audience who's the audience here the audience right. obviously isn't kids this isn't for families to watch together the audience is for uh pederasts i guess i don't know the, the audience definitely is for those who have depraved nature those who are curious those who are interested maybe those who thought about having sex with a child because a couple of years ago the rutherford institute posted a published uh, a story in in America, Americans buy children for sexual activity 2.5 million times a year. And that was a couple years ago. This is just going to escalate. And the predators are laughing. They're saying, woohoo, look at this. They're making it okay for us to go after this age group. Well, what, what about the uh, what I said at the outset, too, just this, this whole idea of trying to uh, mainstream pedophilia that, I mean, you've, you've had these these ghastly organizations around for a long time, like NAMBLA. Um, you've had these op-eds that have been published in, in leftist outlets, like I mentioned, Salon.com. There, there, right. there, there, there really is this effort afoot, and it seems like whether wittingly or unwittingly, this advances that effort to say love is love, and who are we to draw lines when and, and stand in the way of love? Exactly. You're absolutely right. And to what end? Okay, to what end are they approaching this audience that they know has has a predilection to this kind of activity? They know that there will be people out there. This just creates a whole other situation, you know, for another Epstein. I mean, these little girls are going to grow up. They're going to have had this experience. They have the exposure. Uh, and for that whole population, they are now at risk. And we fight every day to protect kids from child exploitation to protect them from being treated, you know, like for lack of a better phrase, piece uh, pieces of meat. Okay. And, 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 and now we, yeah. And I'm yep. sorry to interrupt, but this is just incredible to me against the backdrop of the Jeffrey Epstein case, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell case, all of the appropriate and associated outrage over that sex trafficking ring, the me too movement, as I mentioned at the outset of our conversation. I mean, I, I don't know how people reconcile supporting a movie like this with their uh, moral panic over Epstein and, and uh, other sexual predators. Exactly. There really isn't a way to, to reconcile that. But I think with Netflix, they can sneak into our televisions. They can sneak into the homes of, of America and no one will see, no one will know. They can, they can, I mean, basically the predators are going to use this, um, as their their rite of passage saying, well, hey, it's okay. It's all over TV. America's going, you know, uh, the way Europe has gone. You know, it's not a big deal. You know, kids have sex. What 10-year-old do you know actively seeks out a sexual relationship? What do they even know about that? She is Andy Berger. She's the co-founder of Beulah's Place in Redmond, Oregon. She's the author of A Fragile Thread of Hope, One Survivor's Quest to Rescue, and she's the co-founder of Voices Against Trafficking. Andy, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. I sort of teased this uh, last hour 
with respect to uh, the uh, Trump assessment, the assessment on Trump, really, in terms of the response to the COVID virus and how impactful that is in informing people's judgment about November 3rd, how to assess a federal government response to a crisis, a president's response to a crisis. That doesn't seem to me to have gotten enough discussion. And uh, it brings me to a couple of good pieces, one from uh, William Vogeli at Claremont Review of Books. That's right on topic. And the other, just uh, a point that Holman Jenkins made in a piece in The Wall Street Journal over the weekend, uh, actually tackling the issue of the wildfires in California. But he uh, he talked about... Um, the institutionalization of problem solving in D.C. at the federal level, noting that it's been three decades since climate change became a mainstream political cause, political cause. And uh, in the decades that followed, climate politics became institutionalized, writes Jenkins. That means interest groups and business lobbies becoming self-sustaining based on the money that climate fears generate. Jenkins writes, problems that become institutionalized aren't solved. They become a multi-generational meal ticket by not being solved. You create an industry around the problem and the fears, realized or not, evidence-based or not in so many respects. Give me give you another example to make it concrete. The great societies turned into poverty, Inc. Would we largely fund? Yes, some of the money spent by the federal government gets to people through the food support programs and other social welfare programs. But the majority of the money is spent on the bureaucracy, Poverty, Inc., a multi-generational meal ticket for not solving poverty, for not lifting people out of dependence to independence, which is ostensibly the goal. The goals are lost sight of. We need to continue funding these projects for the purpose of funding our constituency for the purpose of protecting our meal ticket. So climate change politics gets institutionalized, multi-generational meal ticket, the same way that the welfare state did. So how do we make assessments? Well, we first need to start with a realistic understanding of what we're assessing. Government is not an omnicompetent authority, to borrow a phrase from Chris DeMuth. And so you don't judge the federal response, any president's response, any government's response against uh, some uh, utopian idea of flawlessness. You have to judge it based on you know, sort of real world standards, building in fallibility. Uh, Vigeli, going to his piece, points up three problems that beset real world public officials. It's hard to know things, number one, to determine what's true and what's important in the midst of a crisis. As von Clausewitz described, war is the province of uncertainty and chance. Uh, those who contend with uh, sudden encompassing crises like a pandemic face the same quandary. Facts are fragmentary, disputed, unreliable, contradictory. And uh, Vogeli writes, in epidemics, distinctive informational problems are especially severe. Even when we have good reason to know a fact, we may well struggle to believe it. Normalcy bias strongly disposes us to think that what we've grown accustomed to in the past is the best guide to what we'll encounter in the future. And, um, you know, that may be wrong. This is uh, in part my argument that we should have gradually moved our way in to addressing the crisis as we're trying to gradually move our way out of the lockdown policies that were rushed into in most quarters in America. You know, he notes, Vogeli does, that President Trump said several things about the virus that his enemies cherish, his advisors regret, underplaying it. It's like a miracle is going to disappear. We played uh, part of that in the exchange with Jim Acosta last hour. But, of course, he was hardly alone in underestimating the virus's danger. In point of fact, uh, he was more on the ball than most of the public health experts in moving to shut down travel from China post-haste at the end of January. I mean, how many times has Tony Fauci, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Redfield been wrong? How many times have they reverse their positions. 
And it's not to say that um, they're incompetent. It's to say you have imperfect, fragmentary information. You make a judgment call based on your base of knowledge and the information that you understand to be true and, and, and the competing options to serve competing interests. And then if it turns out that uh, you miscalculated, then you try to retrench and make a different decision. There's nothing wrong with that, except when Trump does it, apparently. Second problem Vigeli points out confronting real governments as opposed to the imaginary omnicompetent ones is it's hard for officials who formulate and implement the response to a sudden crisis to choose things. It's hard to choose between it's hard to compare costs and benefits, risks and rewards, short term and long term outcomes. These high stake trade offs demand hard choices, but invite easy moralizing uh, example to make it real uh, that he provides, which is a good one. Uh, remember when Sherrod Brown, the disgraceful senator, Democrat senator, socialist senator from Ohio, demanded that Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin specify, quote, how many workers should give their lives to increase our GDP by half a percent during Mnuchin's testimony before Senate committee or raise the Dow Jones by a thousand points, uh, you know, suggesting that was imposing a trade off that uh, the administration and, and certainly Steve Mnuchin was not making. As Vigeli writes, such imbecilic stridency is much older than the coronavirus pandemic, but it makes it difficult to make those difficult decisions, understanding that part of that is a political calculus, too. Naturally, it is. Uh, the third problem, and I'm giving this uh, short shrift. You should really read the whole piece, which I'll tweet out, the Vigeli piece in Claremont Review of Books. Uh, tweet out at Dan Proctor. Third problem facing governments that are not omnicompetent. A problem especially acute during sudden crisis that even even after you've learned as much as you can about the emergency and made the best choices the circumstances allow, it's hard to do things. <laughs> you know, this was, right, the fallacy of Obama governance. I make a speech, I issue a declaration, and then suddenly things just happen. Uh, we fall naturally into speaking of the government, writes Vigeli, as a unitary, rational decision maker. Centrally controlled, completely informed, value maximizing, uh, borrowing from uh, Graham Allison's uh, essence of decision. But generally, uh, Allison reminds us, it's more accurate to view government as a conglomerate of semi-feudal, loosely allied organizations, each with a substantial life of its own. Elected leaders sit on top of this conglomerate, but government's actions happen less as deliberate choices and more as outputs of large organizations functioning according to standard, standard patterns of behavior. It's quasi-independence, though few important issues fall exclusively inside any one particular domain. I think, it's just, you know, so, so now you start to actually apply standards of analysis to the assessment, and it becomes a lot more complicated, doesn't it? Uh, one of the things we understand is that you've got uh, bureaucracy problems uh, that even were President Trump to make addressing the bureaucracy that would be charged, all of the various agencies that would be charged with the pandemic response is number one priority from the day he entered office, which no president has done. It would have, it's completely unclear that he could have you know, properly synchronized all of these agencies to be more effective than, say, the CDC and the FDA were in February when it came to testing. So uh, it just informs informs uh, the discussion in a way that's, you know, just more thoughtful than we get. Vigeli concluding actual governments around the world responded to the COVID-19 crisis with uh, widely varying outcomes. 
There's no clear reason to believe that the severity of the pandemic in any particular country is solely or even primarily a function of how its government acted. It's especially prudent to refrain from issuing final grades to national governments and more until more time passes and more information becomes available about the course of the disease. Yes, if only it were that easy, you know, then that uh, standard runs into the reality and uh, prudence and restraint (laughs) are not exactly features of American political culture today, are they? This is Dan Proctor. Show.com. Welcome back to the show, and uh, this is a fun topic and a fun piece by our friend John Tierney at uh, City Journal. Holding on to the throwaway society, boy, what was uh, the bete noir of the uh, Enlightened environmentalist uh, just a few moments ago is uh, now au courant, the throwaway society, disposable products. Try to get a a cold mug for your beer these days uh, anywhere. Uh, Try to get plates and uh, utensils when it comes to uh, comes to ordering out. The disposable society is back because of the pandemic. It's a lot easier than, uh, you know, spending all your time disinfecting and cleaning, even though so many people are doing that as well. For more on um, holding on to the throwaway society, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid John Tierney, contributing editor of City Journal, former reporter and columnist at the New York Times and co-author of The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. John, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dan. Um, uh, yeah, sorry I had to retire my NPR cloth tote bag. Uh <laughs> Uh, but, uh, you know, that's just no longer fashionable. Plastic bags are all the rage again. <laughs> I know. It, you know, we've rediscovered what is an ancient truth. You know, the reason that the throwaway society began, it, it began about a century ago because of public health officials. You know, they were really concerned about infection, you know, tuberculosis, diphtheria, you know, you know other diseases being spread by people reusing things. And, you know, the great first campaign was about ban the cup because, at drinking fountains, before they had the, the drinking fountains, you know, now they had a spigot of water, and they would leave a metal cup chained to it, and people would drink from it. It was called the common cup, and this just horrified public health officials, and, they, and the first big campaigns were ban the cup. And, of course, the problem was, what do you do once you ban this cup? What are people supposed to drink from? And that's when Dixie Cups came along. Oh. There was this great pioneer, Hugh Moore, who, who uh, you know, came up with these, and they were originally called health cups because they were, um, you know, they were sold in all these states, banned reusable cups, and they, they also banned reusable, they used to be cloth towels on a roller in bathrooms, and those were spreading germs. So they, you know, banned them, and thank God they came up with paper towels instead. And Dixie Cups, for a long time, they're just great old magazine advertisements, you know, that, that they would run, you know, showing the Grim Reaper, you know, lurking at drinking fountains, you know. And during the, Span- you know, the, and the Spanish flu pandemic, sales soared because, you know, people realize you've got to throw this stuff away instead of reusing it. It spreads pathogens. And that's always been known, you know. And, and, and with the plastic grocery bags, there have been studies over the last 10 years that you, when you compare new plastic bags with the reusable totes, your NPR tote, 
most of those bags, you know, people don't wash them out. And when you do grocery shopping in them, you're still harboring bacteria and viruses. And so, so it's, uh, it just makes sense from a health standpoint to use these things. And, and, and aside from that, you know, what I found in looking at the history of the throwaway society was that it used to be considered a great thing. You know, I mean, people just extolled all the advantages. I mean, cellophane was considered a miracle when it came out in the 1920s that you could actually, you know, that it held, it kept foods, food and cigarettes and other things fresher longer. It resisted moisture and you could see a product before you bought it. This was considered, you know, the I it before you buy it was the ad, you know, the DuPont ran and people appreciated all these advantages. And the reason we switched to all these disposable products is that they, you know, that they kept products, you know, fresher, longer. They were more convenient. They saved everyone so much time. And now and that's and, what. Yeah. And now and, and before actually the, the straight up bands, they were taxing it so you could make it a revenue stream, too, in places like Chicago and San Francisco and elsewhere. Right. I mean, even that's unfair because these things, you know, these things are actually, you know, plastic bags are better for the environment than paper bags or, or tote bags. Right. They require a lot less energy to, 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 to manufacture, to transport. They take up less room in landfills. And, you know, they, um, I mean, it's crazy that environmentalists seized on this. You know, it all started, you know, back with Earth Day in the 1970s. And they just, you know, there was something that just, offended the soul of a lot of people, environmentalists, you know, who, the idea of throwing things away. And, you know, I've, I've also done writing for the New York Times about, you know, researching the tightwads and spendthrifts. And, you know, there's about 30, you know, there's actually more tightwads than spendthrifts. And there's just something that people or their brains are kind of wired to the hate throwing things away. And, you know, thrift is a nice virtue, you know, in moderation, but, but it often just goes overboard. And this whole, you know, just revulsion at throwing things away, you know, Greens kind of seized on this, and they, they kept coming up with excuses why we can't have throwaway products. Well, and, know, and, and, I, and I want to pick it up there, too, just because of sort of the, the sophistry and the sentimentality of uh, the arguments and, uh, you know, very much akin to the plastic straw in the nostril of the tortoise. <laughs> so, 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 so let's start there with John Tierney, contributing editor of City Journal, former reporter and columnist, New York Times, co-author of The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. More with John Tierney. A red solo cup is cheap and disposable. In 14 years, they are decomposable. And unlike my home, the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this. It's the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with John Tierney, contributing editor to City Journal, former reporter and columnist at The New York Times, co-author of The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. He is a pen to piece on the throwaway society and how it is fashionable again as giving us a little bit of a history from the banning of the common cup to the introduction of Dixie cups to uh, more disposable products that uh, were indicative of advancements and uh, the the society growing wealthier. But then the environmentalists came in and said, uh, people are having too much fun. There's too much convenience and there's got to be something bad here. They show a picture of a landfill. They show a picture of, uh, uh, whatever, uh, some sort of small animal caught up in the uh, ringings of a six pack of soda. And uh, all of a sudden you got to start banning plastic and and we don't have enough landfill space. And 
that was one of the ways Western civilization was going to come to an end until the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, it's just crazy. I mean, it's been one excuse after another for what is really this sort of gut feeling that, and I and I think that you know the root of it is it's like recycling. Is people feel guilty that that they're that they're able to afford so much stuff. Um, and so they're, they're trying to atone for this, you know, but in the seventies, they claim, well, we can't have plastic and all this disposable stuff because we're running out of natural resources. You know, we're, you know, we're going to run out of petroleum. So we, we have to save it. We can't use it for, pla- you know, for plastic consumer products. Then in the eighties and nineties, it was, oh my God, we're running out of landfill space. Well, you know, there's no place to put it, which was absurd. You know, there's so much land in the United States and, you know, and the landfills just get covered up and. They get turned into golf courses or parks. You know, it's no, it's not a problem at all, and they're very well shielded. You know, when you when your plastic, you know, that ring top from the soda cans, just throw it in the trash. It'll end up in the landfill. It's not gonna, you know, when you actually put it in the recycling bin, that's when there's a chance it might actually damage marine life because <laughs> stuff in the recycling bin. Uh, there's no market for it in the United States, so it gets shipped over, you know, China. generally to Asia yeah. and to these countries that they allow it to leak in. That's where all the plastic pollution in, in you know, the ocean comes from, are these countries in Asia and, and, and some other poor countries that can't handle their waste properly, and so it leaks into the water. You much better off put it in the trash where it goes to a local landfill and it's safe and not going to bother, you know, that poor turtle. Uh, I, I hate to go off on a tangent, but it's not really a tangent. We're talking about the, just the throwaway society recycling programs. I know we've talked about this before, but it bears repeating. I saw it. I was in California last week. And, of course, that's, uh, you know, ground zero for idiocy. And, uh, and mm-hmm. living in Chicago, I'm not too far removed from that. It's sort of <laughs> these these continue the, the continued urban mythology around recycling programs. And since you've done so much uh, research and writing on the topic, just uh, you're sort of speaking to it a bit, but but more detail on the folly of those programs. You know, it is. In fact, I've got a piece that will be out soon in Quillet. It was a great website. You know, um, yes, sure. I, you know, it's really smart stuff. And um, an argument there is that now, you, you know, recycling has been known for a long time that cities lose money and they lose a lot of money on it. And now with all this, these budget shortfalls and, and, you know, falling tax revenues, now is the time to get rid of stuff that you don't need. And you don't need, you know, these curbside recycling programs. Cities are spending money to do it. You know, we point out how in New York, for instance, the city could save at least $250 million a year um, by, you know, by eliminating the recycling program and landfilling the stuff instead. And, you know, the, you know, they just cut, I mean, that's, you know, that's nearly as big as the Parks Department's budget, which is being slashed because, you know, New York were, um, you know, so short of revenue. If they would just stop recycling, it would make, you know, so much sense. I mean, the New York Times had a, um, a recently bemoaned that, that because of the shortfall in revenues, New York was we had to put on hold plans to expand its composting program. Well, the composting program never made any sense. I mean, thank God that, you know, that it's being limited. You know, that stuff just is much better to just landfill this stuff instead of inflicting it on other places. Yeah. You um, uh, you talk about the, the, the free time too. you know, the, the opportunity cost of uh, of the the non throwaway society as advocated by the environmentalists, too. It's just and it's, so uh, I guess as you were sort of intimating before, the idea is to heap scorn on people who are not uh, suffering, enjoying modern conveniences is by <laughs> definition bad, regardless of the actual merits of it. 
Well, you know, and it's funny seeing the old ads in the '60s. Bethlehem Steel had an ad for its new metal you know, uh, soft drink containers, and they had an ad showing one woman just happily throwing her thing into the trash, and then this other woman looking bedraggled as she's dragging all these uh, these uh, these empty uh, glass bottles back to the supermarket. And and the and the ad asked, "Why make hard work out of enjoying soft drinks?" And environmentalists have just been thinking of reasons to do this, you know, to, to make everyone work harder. You know, there's another great ad, Dixie Cups ran, I think it was in the 70s or 80s, um, and it showed this woman, a young woman kind of morphing in the ad into this sort of sad, old, you know, middle-aged woman and then a really kind of depressed older woman. And it just shows this mountain of, of glasses in the sink, you know. <laughs> and she said, you know, why watch your uh, life go down the drain? And and they estimate that the average you know mother in America would have to wash seven thousand glasses a year. And they say, wouldn't you rather spend that time with your kids, which <laughs> that free time instead of washing glasses all the time? And yet that's what you know. I mean, I mean, environmentalists would love you to be washing that NPR tote bag. You know, it, you should be doing that every week. Yeah, you know. And I mean, why? You you write. Uh, I think this is a, a great insight. You you write that uh, that sort of attitude you're describing is actually the most literal form of materialism, a single-minded devotion to preserving raw materials at the expense of more important things in life. You know, the problem it seems to me we get back to this when discussions of energy policy too, is that environmentalists just don't really like human beings. Yeah, there is that where it's really, you know, we're hurting the planet. We're a cancer on the planet, you know. You even see these kind of fantasies, you know, what would the Earth be, you know, be like without us, you know. <laughs> it's just, and, you know, I mean, I, you know, um, I can understand not, you know, not liking your neighbors or even your family, but not liking your species. <laughs> That's really pretty, <laughs> pretty aggressive. I mean, with with some notable exceptions, like uh, like themselves and whoever's in their little collective. Of course, you know, you got to have exceptions. Right, but they, you know, but they don't want to have kids, you know, because that would that's hard on the planet. I mean, it's a very anti-humanistic philosophy. It's really, you know, it, 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 you know, people said it's like getting back to the Druids, where we. We're worshiping nature and sacrificing humans. <laughs> he is John. Um, he is John Tierney, contributing editor to City Journal, former reporter and columnist at the New York Times, co-author of The Power of Bad: How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. John, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. So I flew back from California on Sunday on Southwest and uh, thankfully didn't have this experience, but I could see how it could happen just based on the um, persnickety behaviors around masks that I saw, not just in airports, but on the airplane itself, not just from gate agents, but also from the uh, stewardesses. Chicago mother says she and her toddler son kicked off a Southwest Airlines flight because he wasn't wearing a mask. Jody Degansky said her two-year-old son was eating snacks on the plane before it took off Saturday from Florida to Midway. Partially captured on cell phone video was the incident which began when a Fort Myers airport gate agent asked uh, Degansky and her son to leave the flight. 
They came over maybe four or five times and asked him to pull up his mask. Will he wear his mask during uh, the duration of flight? Are you confident he'll wear his mask? Which I absolutely was, said Degansky. It was definitely a struggle in the moment because he did have food in front of him. So at two years of age, he was a little bit more distracted with the food than wanting to pull his mask up over his face. Well, that's not being very uh, COVID responsible, is it? On the way down, she said he was fine. They take a photo of him. Um, that that, that uh, she had found taking a photo of him and so forth. Uh, he was maskless on the plane. They took a photo. Oh, my gosh. Where were the flight attendants there? Flight attendants were absolutely fine with him. Working on it is what they uh, said. Just work on it. Try to wear it. They were being responsible. So, you know, I don't want to blame Southwest as a corporation, although we'll get to where they do have some blame. You're going to have some individuals in any big organization that are going to be part of the lives of other snitch culture now. Going to be part of the minding, the ascientific, moralizing, minding, moral panickers. On Saturday, though, when she's trying to get back uh, from Florida to Chicago, she gets uh, static from the Southwest crew. Families have been using eating as an excuse so their kids don't have to wear masks. I said that's absolutely not the case here, Degansky said. She said um, after asking a flight attendant to give her six feet of space, the plane turned around And that's when the gate agent forced mother and son off the flight. I felt completely disrespected by the gate agent. It was really a stressful emotional situation and totally humiliating because, again, we were following the guidelines set in place by the airline. We got our luggage, packed up, went back through security, paid almost $600 for an American flight home. On that flight, she said her son slept maskless because American Airlines doesn't require masks until the age of three. Whereas uh, Southwest, it's the age of two. And since he's over two, even though he's two, I guess that qualifies for you know, the uh, body condom or what have you. Again here, corporations that behave like uh, sentinels of the state, that behave like government in the way of sort of ascientific, virtue signaling, unyielding, inelastic, ideological when it comes to something so silly as a two-year-old wearing a mask or not wearing a mask briefly while he's eating or drinking. It's obscene. It's absurd. It's a degradation of our culture. And uh, you got to decide. You want to talk about what our culture will look like and what civil society will look like post-November 3rd, depending on who wins. Think about the sort of snitch culture and totalitarian nature of the culture, not just government formally, but government's influence in all of these civil institutions and society, including big business. You want to live like this? Question to contemplate until we return tomorrow wednesday thanks for joining us today please do so again this is the dan proft show